Rachel, I've heard of this plight of the cows and that all of our milk comes from basically two cow ancestors. Uh, that's right. All of our cows can be traced back to just two bulls from the 1950s, 1960s. Want to hear their names? Oh, yeah. These famous cows. Okay, ready for this? Round Oak Rag Apple Elevation <laughs> and Pawnee Farm Arlinda Chief. <laughs> the Chief. It's a great cow name. <laughs> I guess it's based off of where they're at since there's like a farm in there or different elevations. Oh, that would make s- I actually don't know. That would make sense. All I can think of with the Round Oak Rag is like a song or something. <laughs> yeah, like the Maple maple Leaf yeah, Rag. Yeah, Maple Leaf yeah. Rag, exactly. <laughs> I love that there's one named Pawnee, though. That's kind of cool to know. Like, okay. that See, that also reminds me of a, a song. Wasn't there something about Pawnee River? There might have been. I just think of Parks and Rec. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I never made it past the first two episodes. That's fair. It's it's an interesting show. Not as good as The Office, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Oh, sidebar. We can get rid of this. But there is an Office trivia um, night on at, December 11th. At Bull City? Is it the one at Bull City? Yeah. Are you going to that? I've thought about it. I went to an office trivia recently, and the guy who did it, he pronounced Dwight's name. He's like D. White. He didn't know how to pronounce <laughs> like anything. He obviously had not seen The Office. That's very disappointing. Yeah. But there's also an Office Ladies podcast. Wait, so what? Pa- Pam and Angela have a podcast where they're going <laughs> through every single episode, and they're doing an episode per like Netflix episode. What do they talk about? They talk about like how... Certain things happened, little things they notice. It is fantastic. That's like, fun. Do I they highly talk about, it. Um, I've heard this theory that Toby is actually like the Scranton Strangler. I have heard that theory too. <laughs> I hope they talk about that. Anyways, very off topic. <laughs> That's what a podcast for. You can have all these like random sidebar conversations and it's acceptable. <sighs> okay, so back to dairy cows. Yeah, back to the plight of the cows. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of a great, like, cow pun, but it's nothing's coming to me. I'll think about it. Maybe I'll be spot on. If you think about it, milk it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did say there wasn't much meat to this story, which made me laugh. <laughs> I almost said no pun intended, but that would have been a lie. It's definitely intended. <laughs> you may be wondering why it's a bad thing that all of our cows can be traced back to just two bulls and... um that goes back to a little concept called genetic variation, um, and we're going to talk about that before we jump into this story. What is genetic variation? It's the differences in DNA sequences between individuals in a population, and we've actually talked about this in some previous episodes where we mentioned single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SNPs. So if you think of DNA as that book analogy, like it's the recipe book to make everything that we need in the cell... And the nucleotides are like the letters in this book. Um, sometimes we can have differences in those letters and they don't change the significance of the word, uh, but they just make it a little different. So th- these are single nucleotide polymorphisms. Sometimes these single nucleotide polymorphisms don't really change anything, but sometimes they can make a big difference. Yeah, in the case of hair color, that's one example. I'm a redhead and there's been, I think, one single single nucleotide polymorphism, also known as a SNP, that's been implicated in red hair. 
So when I did 23andMe genetic testing, they tested for that SNP to say, oh, do you have red hair or do you not have red hair? Because normally it's pretty, it's pretty predictable whether or not you have this SNP and if you have red hair. And apparently I don't have the SNP, but I have red hair. So obviously there are some environmental things going on. But there are examples of other diseases like, um, I think Huntington's has some point mutations where one mutation can lead to the disease, but there's very few diseases where that's actually the case. A lot of diseases, you have environmental factors, you have many genes that are contributing to the likelihood of someone getting the disease. And I mean, some of these SNPs don't even happen inside a gene, which which doesn't mean, I mean, you don't have to have a mutation inside a gene to cause a disease. Um, it can happen in a non-coding region. Some of these SNPs just happen in like junk areas of the DNA that we don't really know what the point of them is for. But they're not junk anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's a topic for another podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, we have, I don't know how many average SNPs a person has actually. That would have been a good statistic to look up. I mean, I think all the SNPs that we have contribute to us being different from other people. So right. it's quite a few SNPs, but it's not like a, I don't know, it's not a, I think it's something like two, maybe more than 2,000. It's probably more than 2,000, I would it's guess. It's got to be, yeah. Um, so SNPs are, are one example of genetic variation, but they're, I mean, essentially it could be any mutation that you have in your DNA, so... For instance, you could have um, large deletions in certain genes or inversions, meaning that parts of your DNA can be flipped around. So if you go back to that book analogy, imagine trying to read a word if it's backwards. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's like dyslexia in your genome. Exactly. <laughs> and Emma mentioned Huntington's disease. So that's an interesting one where, you know, you might have different um there are parts of the genome that are repeated sometimes and you might have different numbers of these repeats so in the in the case of Huntington's disease that gene Huntington it it actually has this section of repeated um, nucleotides CAG uh, and that codon codes for the amino acid glutamine and you know just normally all of us have repeated sections of that of that codon in the gene but if you have Huntington's disease, you just have over 35 repeated um, codons, and it's just too many copies inside the gene. Um, so, you, you know, there's a lot of ways that your DNA can, can be different from other people. And, you know, I've given some examples where this can cause disease, but it's not necessarily pathological in nature. Right. I mean, a lot of we need variation in order to be different. So how do these mutations even happen in the first place? Um, well, uh, genetic variation that, that's passed on happens mostly in the, in the germ cells, right? So mm-hmm. AKA your eggs and sperm, eggs or sperm. I don't, well, most people don't have both. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, so when those cells are being produced, um, that requires cell division that's happening in the ovaries or the testes. And during cell divisions, mutations can just happen um, when your DNA is being replicated. Mm-hmm. There's this enzyme called DNA polymerase, and it goes along your your DNA. The original DNA strand that it's trying to copy, it goes along and it's trying to add nucleotides that match up to that original DNA strand. But sometimes it makes mistakes, and it'll add the wrong nucleotide. This just happens naturally at an estimated rate of 1 in 100,000. Which is not even that many, honestly. Like when, yeah, that's when, a pretty good speller. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, when you study genetics and see the error rates of certain enzymes, I'm just amazed that like we are functional human beings that can do things. We have all of our faculties because one of those errors can completely impact you for the rest of your life and cause developmental issues. But red hair. Yeah. (laughs) I'm okay with that one. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And I mean, obviously if you had one in a hundred thousand mutations in your DNA, that would be a really bad thing. So the cell has a lot of systems in place to correct these mutations. In fact, the DNA polymerase enzyme itself can kind of proofread and if it makes a mistake it can back up and and fix it um and there are other dna editing um mechanisms that happen after the fact after dna replication but sometimes you miss some things besides just dna polymerase potentially making mistakes the chromosome from mom and dad will pair up next to each other and go through this process called recombination and this basically is just where they'll swap certain parts of their chromosomes to kind of mix up the genes and the genetics so that way you won't have children that all have the exact same chromosomes and this is a really interesting process because it can lead to issues where you swap you swap all of the x chromosome from mom but not the x chromosome from dad and that can be sometimes an issue if you have like too much of a gene product say you're producing three times as much of a gene than you need to be producing Sometimes, I guess, I don't know how this happens if recombination goes wrong or something, where you, it's called like uniparental disomy, Mm. where you have um, like sections of your chromosome are from, you don't have one for mom, one from dad, it's it's like both mom. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. And I think sometimes that can be an issue. Like there are some genes that need to specifically come from dad and be turned on from dad. But if you only have the mother's copy, then you don't have the signals that tell you to turn it on the dad's copy. And that can lead to different diseases. Like there's several, several that is known. Yeah, Angelman's and Prader-Willi syndrome. They both are like kind of the reciprocal of each other. One's where you inherit both of dad's chromosomes and one is where you inherit both of mom's chromosomes. But this whole topic is super complex. And we have a video kind of detailing recombination more. Just because you almost need a visual. Like, I feel like every time I read about it, I just need to see a visual again, even though I've studied it so many times. Rachel, why is all this genetic variation important? Like, we've given examples of instances where you don't want things to happen to your DNA, but then we also want variation to be different from each other. Exactly. I mean, first and foremost, I think you said it before, this genetic variation is is what makes us different. It's what makes us us. These subtle changes can lead to... um, Differences in our physical characteristics, like hair color and eye color, um, and they can also affect more complex traits, like how we respond to certain drugs. Um, you know, when we get to more and more complex traits, I think you could argue that it's kind of a combination between genetics and mm-hmm. environment. But certainly, this genetic variation plays into that, and this genetic variation is also the basis of evolution. Right? Uh, we can't evolve as a species if we're not having mutations slowly along the way (laughs) yeah you think of people who live up in i know like the eskimos and their genetics evolve in a way that they can withstand cold and if we someone from i don't know texas went up there it'd take a few generations for that to happen to them too it would not happen right away (laughs) that's true and then I think genetic diversity, it's also great because it helps you avoid homozygosity. And homozygosity, I mean, we kind of talked about 
chromosomes, homozygosity means like if you have two genes that are the same from your parents, you know. So when your DNA is homozygous or has regions of homozygosity, it means that it's identical on both copies of your chromosomes. And oftentimes this can lead to a disease. Most diseases are recessive, so you have to have two copies of the recessive gene to lead to the disease. So if you have lots of regions of homozygosity, you're more likely to pick up some sort of disease based off of your genetics. And we see this a lot in the case of here of the European monarchies where they all interbred. Mm. And I mean, you can see their family trees and see how inbred they are. And this led to the uh, hemophilia, which is a recessive blood disorder. And that's why there's kind of the law now that you can't really, you should not marry your cousin and even your second cousin is kind of frowned down upon because you're basically going to bias your children towards having more regions of homozygosity and the likelihood of getting a disease. Right. And when you think about uh, why most diseases are recessive, it kind of makes sense that it's much easier for a mutation um, to cause loss of function in the protein um, than gain of function. So most of the time, like that, even if you lose function in one copy, the other copy of that gene can can compensate for that Mm -hmm. um, since you have a copy from each parent. And, you know, that's why you would need to have mutations in both of the copies. Right. And going back to just really basic genetics, we know that DNA codes for protein. So each, and each protein has a function in our body and plays different roles. So we need all of our proteins to be functional so that we can exist as happy, healthy human beings. So if you have a dysfunctional protein, it can lead to a lot of issues depending on which protein it is. So... Back to the cows. We're talking about cows? What? (laughs) What do cows have to do with inbreeding? (laughs) How did we get to this point with our dairy cows that they're so genetically similar? Um, I was kind of surprised by this, but I found this article by um, NPR, actually. We'll we'll put it in the episode description. They explain how farmers actually go about the breeding. So what I didn't understand about cow breeding before (laughs) I looked up the story is that um, farmers will actually like go through these companies and order semen from bulls. Um, it's like a sperm bank. Exactly. With bull sperm. Exactly. <laughs> so they do they then use that sperm to like in vitro fertilize? Like yeah, the, no, they, yeah, they must. Wow. Which is crazy to me. I just, <laughs> I just assumed it was old fashioned. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but. But no, it's very sophisticated. They go through these, these websites. Um, and, you know, as opposed to humans who I'm sure they... I've never been to a sperm bank, but I'm sure they list, like, physical description, you know, mm-hmm. maybe IQ score, blah, blah, blah. What the farmers are interested in is how much milk do these cows produce? Ah. So every cow gets, like, some kind of a ranking that will, will tell you the average amount of milk produced by their offspring. So, of course, farmers are going to be picking the, the best milk producers over and over again. And they just keep picking these same bowls that are the best milk producers. Farmers across America are going to companies like Select Sires is, is one of these companies and um, just ordering from the top producers. So, Chad to Chow, a geneticist at Penn State University, estimates that 
on average, these top performers, these bulls that um, have the best milk stats, um, may account for over a quarter million daughters. That is... Wow, I can't. Can you... Like, it sounds like Attila the Hun. It really does. <laughs> when even I know recently people have, with the advent of 23andMe, like, there's this one guy who it was a sperm donor and found out he has, like, hundreds of children. I know. From his sperm. So this is like that with the bulls. It's messed up. I... <laughs> That's another story, but I also heard that a lot of people, because of 23andMe, are finding out that they were actually inseminated um, by their doctors. Sperm from their doctors. Yeah. What? Yes. Not kidding. That is horrible. And they'd yeah. never know. No. Unless you do a genetic test. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Well, they need to Well, I mean, their, their parents were inseminated by the, by the fertility doctor. Yeah. Yeah. That is messed up. And some of them try to defend it like, oh, well, you know, it, they just wanted a baby and it was, you know, it's best to use fresh. Like, <laughs> Oh, man, that is wow. such a breach of so many ethical things yeah, that's and confidentiality story. and privacy. But people are terrible. Back to cows. <laughs> <laughs> These cows might not be much better. Yeah. So... You might be thinking, you know, what's what's the problem? You're picking cows that are making more milk. Like, isn't this good? Um, it's good for the farmers. It's good for us. Milk is cheaper if they're making more. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is people are not as smart as they think they are. <laughs> no, believe it or not. Even though we're scientists, we will freely admit we know very little about oh, the yes. world. Have you seen the movie Jurassic Park? Oh, my goodness. What Don't was the line? Like, something about not playing God? Yeah, and then they, like, I think they manipulate five different genomes and inject it into this egg to give it all these features. And but they use frog DNA. Yeah. Frogs that can change sexes. <laughs> Anywho, so while we're, on the one hand, um, selecting for cows that are producing more milk, I guess farmers also thought that, that breeding skinnier cows would be better because if they're skinny, that means they're not storing all their feed into fat like mm. the fat cows and they're like turning all the feed into producing milk and not like just storing that energy however by doing this they unintentionally selected for cows that are unhealthier and less fertile ah so <laughs> well, and then with that too if you keep inbreeding you don't know what is going to come up eventually like who knows if there's something in the milk or how that's going to affect people who have that milk. Like there's, it's, I mean, that's the hard thing with genetics. We don't know how things we're going to do are going to affect the future. Like you heard recently probably about um, scientists genetically modifying mosquitoes. So that way they wouldn't, yeah, they basically modified mosquitoes so that when the mosquitoes bred, that they wouldn't be able to be fertile. And so they're thinking, oh, if these females go and we release them into the wild potentially they could kill out the mosquito population right seems then, solid okay yeah but then how we don't know how that will affect that population of mosquitoes how it will affect the frogs and the other things that are dependent on those mosquitoes for food yes yeah, it might anything, help prevent anything uh, malaria ecology i just feel like <laughs> i don't know enough to yeah to mess with it yeah what's that the butterfly effect I think so. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, because it's like a butterfly lands on something and then and there's a hurricane across the globe. (laughs) You try to weed out mosquitoes and (laughs) kill everyone. (laughs) The winds down in Africa that make up hurricanes. (laughs) I mean, you could be like intentionally selecting for this trait, like getting the skinnier cows, and then that actually ultimately makes them unhealthy. Mm -hmm. Or it could, you know, unintentionally. Maybe they're producing more milk, but like whatever gene that's involved with that is also linked to something bad like that's called linkage disequilibrium right yeah so it's like where certain genes are linked together especially if they're close they'll be inherited together and so we call them linked so a lot of times if you're if one gene's being affected a whole other group of genes will be affected so this is how for example 23andMe can link you to where you're from based off of certain groups of genes that are inherited together from certain populations I'm glad you remembered how to explain that. It's <laughs> been a while. <laughs> um, so is there anything that people, we can do to prevent this? Well, I mean, unfortunately, there's not a lot of incentive for farmers to breed cows that might not produce as much milk. <laughs> the geneticist I mentioned before, um, Chad DeChow, is working on this. He He was able to get a semen that was frozen from bulls. I don't know what year, but, Mm -hmm. you know, a little earlier than now. And and so he was able to make cows that are less genetically similar than they are today. Uh, And he's monitoring how much milk they're producing. And he says they're, like, pretty much um, holding up to today's standards. So That's good. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe they won't be, like, the top, top milk producers. But if they stay relatively consistent with the industry standards, you know. Yeah, and if they're healthier and more fertile, that's very attractive exactly i mean sure in the short term a lot more milk is good but in the long term obviously you're always going to need to produce more cows eventually right yeah and then they could just produce cows the old-fashioned way instead of having to like in vitro (laughs) fertilize yeah these are some fancy cows (laughs) good gracious 